There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix on the 17th of June 2010. Now, newcomers, as always, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and bookmark all the other sites you see listed there for future use. That way you can always get a clean download uh, if too many folk are going into the com at the same time. And if I have trouble with the Yahoo sites, you've got these alternate sites to download from, hopefully. And remember, they all have transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given in English for Prince Up and passing around to your friends. They all have the same audios as well. But if you want uh, transcripts in foreign languages, you can go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu and download from there. They also, by the way, have the audios if you want to download from them. And when you're in there, go in to the books I have for sale and the discs and the DVDs. I really would be churning out a lot more if I wasn't doing just this and raking in the cash, you see. But we're going through the most amazing times in our history, certainly in in my lifetime, and it's all planned that way. So you can't really sit on the sidelines and just make money. You've got to be in the fight, so to speak, if it's nothing more than at least waking a few people up and giving them some consciousness. And really, that sometimes that's the only thing you can achieve is consciousness. And that comes with a heavy penalty of now you now you know. What do you do with it when you see how enormous this big matrix system is? But I show you the techniques in the books how to understand uh, how you're conned and how you're fooled on a daily basis by the language, by the symbols and so on, and how things are presented to you by experts from academia who have written lots of books on the subject, by the way, mainly used by the military department of psychological warfare. So buy the books and that helps me trickle over because it's expensive doing what I'm doing. There's bills all the time and I don't accept uh, payment from advertisers uh, to keep me going. That's a lucrative field and most hosts do that. Uh, That keeps them going uh, with a good income. The ads you hear on this show are paid directly by the advertisers straight to RBN for their airtime to broadcast the show for their board operators and for their bills. And we all have bills, so help me out. So you can order my stuff through from the U.S. to Canada. You can order it with personal check or international postal money order from your post office if you wish. Cash is fine. Or PayPal. You'll see the donation button there for PayPal. Send appropriate donation and a separate email with your name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you as fast as I can. Same across the rest of the world. And you've also got the additions of Western Union or MoneyGram. And again, remember, cash or PayPal is fine for ordering or donating. And generally, I just get by on occasional donations from the same few people. But that's life. That's life in this modern world where we have the me generation in full bloom. Although they're looking a bit withered right now, but they just don't know it. And they don't know how bad, they don't know how bad it's going to become. You know, the, 
the whole agenda we're living right through right now, including the environmental side of it, the carbon taxes, the the teaching whole generations across the whole world to come under global governance and allow themselves to be servants to the world state, uh, have been on the go for over a hundred years. And it's not just a matter of someone putting out an idea and paying a few bucks to different foundations to promote it, which they certainly do, lots of bucks in fact, but it's also teaching it through the school system, through your comedies, through your movies, through your soap operas. You're bombarded with it all the time to bring in a designed, planned society, just like back in the 60s they brought in the rock and roll, they brought in the drugs, and the military provided both initially, in fact, because most of the rockers, the top ones, and I've done a couple of talks on that too, uh, were all the offspring of intergenerational military Pentagon families. Madonna is one of them, by the way. Her brother came out with a book on it. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix just talking about the phases we go through, the generations we go through and how everything's catered for each generation, how they're going to live, uh, the standard of living or the fall of it depending on the time period and the mores and their behavior and what they will believe. But we're also really kept in a limbo state of being happy, just be happy, live for today and live for the weekly paycheck if you have one, and go out and have fun. Really, that's what governments want. They don't like people sitting at home and discussing with their friends what's really happening in the world. They don't even like them going into bars and discussing that kind of stuff. That's why you can't talk in a bar. You've got to yell like crazy, and it's impossible to have a conversation. That's all psychological warfare, too. And uh, I can remember in Britain, the, the bar was a local place where everybody came, the pub, all the locals came, you, you found out everything was happening in that area, what the town councils were up to, and you, you could protest them by finding out and so on. And in came the television sets and sports with them up full blast until you couldn't hear yourself talk. Then everybody had to sit and stare at these darn things. And that was the end of that. So that was all intentional as well, encouraged from the top. So nothing happens by chance in society. Believe you me, nothing happens by chance. Everything is designed that way for control purposes. And you have no idea of how much energy and your tax money goes in to hiring people, big panels and teams to control you and your behavior and to update you when required with the proper thoughts, the ones that are deemed proper by your betters. And I said years ago, you know, it wouldn't matter if this whole global warming thing is proved absolutely nonsensical and people came out from the top and admitted it, which a lot have done, in fact. And it wouldn't matter if old Jehovah himself came down and started blowing away the chemtrails over our heads. Uh, they'd have to nuke them because this agenda must go on. They'd never change their plans. We've all to become slaves and pay and pay and pay for energy. Maurice Strong talked about this in the 90s when the UN sent him over to privatize uh, Ontario Hydro at the time, the, the electric supply for the whole of Ontario, including all the nuclear power plants. 
And he said at the time, he said the future will be very bleak for most, he says, uh, because we're going to really slash energy right down to bare bones for essential businesses and so on only. And he talked about then using taxpayers' money to put in big generators alongside the important businesses and government buildings. This sort of all been done. So they knew a long time ago what they had planned for to bring into us, for us, you see. And uh, as I say, there's, there's nothing like a great crisis to to bring it all into being. Now, we know that Obama's given his latest speech. There's a big build-up to the speech. But personally, I like the, the speech writers themselves. I think we should give Oscars to the speech writers since they do all the work. And they're trained in this field of psycholinguistics. But going back to a previous talk he gave on the 14th, Obama he said he likened the Gulf environmental disaster to 9-11, and that was in Yahoo News, uh, and that was June the 14th. He says, Barack uh, Obama likened the disastrous oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico to the September the 11th attacks in an interview published on the eve of his fourth visit Monday to the stricken region, allowed to play golf, because he does this week, he goes down there and plays golf. But anyway, you see, they're tying it into a major event. Remember, 9-11... The statement that came out uh, at the time was, the, the, the life will never be the same again. So what is really saying that in, in this particular article is life will never be the same again. It's even more so than the last not same again. Because you can go into a world of servitude, piece by piece by piece, and you will have mass migrations from the coast eventually. That's all part Agenda 21. And put into the overcrowded cities, and then it'll be like soil and green for a while, and riots and all the rest of it. They expect that with rationing. And then a lot will die off by the year 2035 or so, whenever it happens to be. According to the think tanks for the military, and I've published them too on my website in the archive section. But in his latest speech, it says here, language guru Obama's speech is too professional for his target audience. And this is from CNN.com. President Obama's speech on the Gulf oil disaster may have gone over the heads of many of his audience, according to analysis of the 18-minute talk released to Wednesday. Tuesday night's speech from the Oval Office of the White House was written to a a 9.8-grade level, said Paul J.J. Payback. I was going to say payback. This is Payak, president of Global Language Monitor. The Austin, Texas-based company analyzes and catalogs trends in world usage and world choice and their impact on culture. They're a very important organization, one of many actually, though, but they do work, work with the military on propaganda for abroad, on, again, in uh, neurolinguistics and psycholinguistics. So they're saying that uh, it went over their heads because it was it was too profession too high. It says though the president used slightly less than four sentences per paragraph, his 19.8 words per sentence added some difficulty for his target audience. P. Access. See, they understand we've been dumbed down so much by television, the culture industry, and linguistic minimalism. Exactly what uh, Orwell said would happen. He singled out this sentence from Obama as an unfortunate. 
This is a sentence. That is just that is why just after the rig sank, I assembled a team of our nation's best scientists and engineers to tackle this challenge. A team led by Dr. Stephen Chu, a Nobel Prize winning physicist and our nation's Secretary of Energy. That was just too much for the average punter out there, apparently. Says the monitor's chief word analysis uh, found these three sentences insensitive. This is one of them. Already, this oil spill is the worst environmental disaster America's ever faced. Now, that's not really true. Uh, you see, they love to hype it up, and people are already going neurotic and berserk over it, because the fringe always do. I read that article the other day about how the fringe go crazy, and some of them commit suicide thinking the world's going to end, or when you sink under the sea, or we're going to live in a barren world with nothing to eat, except the occasional bean sprout or something. Um, but you're forgetting, too, of all the nuke bombs, the nuclear bombs that were tested in the 50s and 60s in Nevada, and how whole towns were eventually wiped out, because they used them. They'd let the stuff float over their heads. In fact, they would time them some days to see if the wind was blowing that direction, and then it would follow the health of the people as they died off. And they did the same in the Soviet Union, by the way. There's a very good documentary on both of them doing it uh, at that time. If I got a hold of it, I'll put it up for you. An excellent documentary. And um, and that was a big thing at the time as well. It says, Un- unlike an earthquake or a hurricane, it's not a single event that does its damage or does, does damage in a matter of minutes or days. The millions of gallons of oil that spilled in the Gulf of Mexico are more like an epidemic, one that we've been fighting for for months and even years. Now, the, the guy goes on to say, you shouldn't be saying that. In Katrina land, said Payak, referring to the 2005 hurricane that devastated the Gulf Coast, New Orleans lost a third of its populations, and it's still recovering. But I praised Obama's phrase, oil began spewing, as an active and graphic term. You see, it's all written by professionals, this stuff, you see, not Obama. It's it's speechwriters who have been trained uh, like like Payak here on neurolinguistics and psycholinguistics to to make sure that the great unwashed masses uh, get the right kind of version of it for their simple little minds. He says at a micro level, the average word in the speech contained 4.5 letters, a bit longer than is typical for the former constitutional law professor. Payak said, Obama's nearly 10th grade level rating was the highest of any of his major speeches and well above the grade 7.4 of his 2008 Yes, We Can victory speech, which many consider his best effort, Payak said. The scores indicate that this was not Obama at his best, especially when attempting to make an emotional connection to the American people. See, it's all staged, isn't it? It's all acting, isn't it? Isn't that what it is? I'll put these links up, by the way, at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. Uh, all the ones I'll mention here, and plus the full speech as well. And then the part from this guy, PX, uh, particular company here, it says here, uh, it's called the Global Language Monitor. This is Thursday, June 17, 2010. Obama all spills speech echoes elite aloof ethos. When Obama is at his best, such as the Grant Park Yes We Can speech, the president has a direct and emotional context or connection with the American people. This speech simply did not live up to that high standard, and the numbers reflect it. Comparisons with previous addresses and those of other presidents. Passive voice, passive voice, you see, highest for any major presidential address this century. 
surprisingly high 10th grade reading and hearing level. According to an exclusive analysis by the Global Language Monitor, President Obama's all-spilled speech echoed his elite ethos with a broad plan for an alternative energy future and few specifics. That's very important. A broad plan for an alternative energy future. That's Agenda 21. You will not have cars at all. Essential vehicles only. That's why there were few specifics mentioned. The only specifics of the address were the continuation of the offshore drilling ban, effectively putting tens of thousands of Gulf Coast jobs in jeopardy. The President's first Oval Office address came in at a surprising high 10th grade reading level with some 13% passive constructions, the highest level measured in any major presidential address in this century. In political speaking, the passive voice is generally used to either deflect responsibility or to have no particular doer of an action. A previous analysis using GLM's narrative tracker found the president's primary narrative arc, a narrative arc, to be that of Obama as an oil spill enabler. Nothing in the address would appear to change that narrative, though formal analysis will be forthcoming in the next week. They're trained to say this stuff, you see. These, these, these guys write top speeches. I hear the music coming in, so we'll be back with more after these messages. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix where you really find out what's real and what isn't real and question everything because... All the stuff that's put out to you, even by mainstream media, uh, is, is really worked through psychology before it ends up in your little brain. Uh, and it's all intended to be warped and to warp your brain so that you'll come along and think that you're thinking for yourself and you've come to your own conclusions. And sure enough, your friends around you will all have the same download and you'll think you're quite sane. And you've been upgraded all the time and changed all the time uh, into a being that your master's designed for themselves. And that's always really been the way of it. It was perfected now, though it's really high science, taught at a lot of universities, and the, the top players in, the, in these fields get the top jobs in the military because they use a lot of it for, for psychological warfare on countries they want to take down and dominate, and they also use it on the populace of their own peoples. I've always said, too, really, though, that the top people should be awarded um, for script writing some kind of special Oscar or something. And we could watch on television the different ones, one for Sarkozy, his script writer, one for uh, the, the Cameron in Britain, and maybe one for the U.S., one in Canada. And maybe do a little quiz as well, so we, and then they could get a little prize in that. We could watch it and enjoy it. Because after all, they're doing all the work, and these actors in front of them just play golf and take all the credit, or sometimes they take the tomatoes. That's what they're for. They're a Punch and Judy show for the public. But it's interesting how it all works. And again, the the greatest indoctrination of all goes through your schooling system as they turn children into little perverts and little green ones at that, because that's how they're decided to make it. 
and the adults themselves were degraded in turn, so they allow more perversion with each generation. It's incremental and intergenerational, planned a long time ago, and you can read articles about it going back uh, as early as the 1800s from George, or not George Orwell, H.G. Wells, when he, he actually called it free love, and he right down to eventually breaking the barriers for intergenerational sex. Late 1800s, folks. No greater way to destroy a society. Look around you. And all the culture industries in it, the fashion industries in it, and everyone copies what they see on television, in the movies, and in much music. And literally you can't tell the prostitutes from the average person in some cities today. And we all think that's quite normal. And as they do that too, they're telling us, oh my God, be very, very, very scared scared because the world could be plunged into crisis in 2014. A Cambridge expert as a priest, you see. Remember remember what uh, Russell said? We shall train the public uh, that they're ruled by experts and they can't think without the expert opinion on things. So they they just call them experts now. As soon as you see that, it's a high priest, you see. It's got the same connotations as holy, you see. World could be plunged into crisis in 2014, Cambridge expert predicts a great event will determine the course of the century. And that's the Daily Mail. It's probably in a handout from one of the big PR companies. Uh, 17th of June 2010, the doomsday moment will take place in 2014 and will determine whether the 21st century is full of violence and poverty or will be a peaceful and prosperous, according to a Cambridge University professor. In the last 500 years, there's been a cataclysmic great event of international significance at the start of each century, he claims. Occurring, it should really go back to John Dee's day, I guess that's when he started it. Occurring in the middle of the second decade of each century, they include events which sparked wars, religious conflict, and brought peace. It's, and it's got a whole list of things that happened in the past, you know. In history, Professor Nicholas Boyle of Cambridge University, who carried out research, has pinpointed the global financial crisis as a trigger for the next great events. He got an expert, an expert to understand that. That's why he's an expert. And he claims the U.S., with its waning economic influence but unrivaled military power, holds the key to determining the course and character of the next 90 years. I guess he's read the 90-page report put out by the think tank for the British military and NATO, and you'll find it in my archives because that's exactly what these all said, so he's really copying that. Professor Boyle said the character of a century becomes very apparent in that second decade, so why should ours be any different? Partly the timing has to do with the way we divide our understanding of human life and human history. If a century is going to have a character, it is going to become apparent by the time it's approaching 20 years old. The same is true of human beings. Another factor is the sequence of generations. By about two decades in generation that was really dominant in the last phase of the previous century, they've had their day, they're gone, you see, they're over. The future is beginning to be defined by their children, who will only have lived in or have memories of the new brainwashing century. I did the brainwashing there because that's how they He's really telling you about a technique without mentioning it. The professor who lectures in German and German history said the recent economic collapse set the wheels in motion of a wider breakdown in international relations. Well, that again was covered in the military report for the next 30-odd years. The U.S., he said, will become the key player in a series of make-or-break decisions and either condemn us to a century of violence and poverty or usher in a new age of global cooperation. That's total integration, folks, for the United Nations. 
but he cautioned that peace is only possible if the world realizes that an age of individual nation-states is over. So he's telling you it's over, nation-states and sovereignty is over, and an effective system of global governance is introduced. Well, he's one of the boys, you see. He'll belong to the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and he's Cambridge boy too, of course. Flashpoints of world politics such as climate change, ha ha ha, and the rise of China and India, as well as a global credit crisis, will need international cooperation to be resolved, he said. They used to burn these guys in the old days, you know, for predictions and big bonfires. This guy's getting paid by our tax money. But of course, he knows the agenda, as we all do, anybody who listens to the show. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. The last couple of articles, I'm just showing you how they all tie together to get a theme across into our heads. And they call these memes, M-E-M-E-S. And I prefer to call it a meme, you see, a meme. See, I'm, I'm jealous of the me generation. I was never part of the me generation. I was, I was part of the generation just before it, where everything was just out of reach generation. Yeah, everything was just out of grasp. So, uh, and apart from that, the roadrunner called it meme as well. And he always got off with it. But anyway... The snobs like memes. But a meme's a theme that, that is put out there deliberately by those that know, and it runs through society. It runs through the Internet. I can tell when one's been put out because I get so many different links about the same topic coming from so many different people. They set the tones of your thought for the day. And they also have been doing that forever with newspapers, and that was the Internet. And it's also based in um, talk shows and television and Again, comedies, movies, and so on. These are the things you're supposed to think about, and they also give the conclusions that you're supposed to come out with as well. So the last ones that were about experts telling you that uh, uh, the environment and the end of uh, nationalism is, is part of the whole agenda, that's also coming up in a few days in Canada, uh, this great $1.1 billion boondoggle and climbing uh, G20 and G8 meeting that lasts a few days. They get 10 minutes each to, to burp, you know, after drinking all that brandy and having all that food and say, and that's it, it's over with. In other words, they sign documents and treaties that were all drafted up years before by the bureaucrats. That's what these things really are for. But he's another one to, to add to that meme, you see, uh, to make sure we all get the point of global governance and all the rest of it. And this is the UN Global Compact Leaders Summit ties in with it 2010. And it says, the overview, our world is at a critical juncture. Never give you any happy news, these control freaks say, because after all, if we were happy, they couldn't get more control over you. Future advances in global integration. Global integration means total, total end of sovereignty, folks. Poverty reduction, which is, of course, a big joke. A protection of our planets and ultimately peace. Critically depend on our ability to collectively address the most pressing global challenges, accelerating the practice of corporate sustainability and responsibility is an urgent task in these complex times, when crises from financial market breakdowns to environmental degradation are increasingly global and connected. 
The stakes could not be higher, given that climate change threatens the security of food, water and energy, along with Monsanto, Atcher, Daniel, Midlands and all the rest of them. I added the last part, of course, because that should be in there. The interlocking resource pillars which underpin prosperity and productivity of the economy. To bring about a new era of sustainability, everything's sustainable now, you see. Business and prosperity, business everywhere must put long-term considerations, comprehensive risk management and ethics at the top of the corporate agenda. So they're going to build a new era of sustainability. That's also getting mentioned at the G20 meeting. Chaired by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, Howell Howell, the UN Global Compact Leaders Summit 2010 will provide the platform for organizations to convene. That's non-democratic folks, that's not you, obviously. Collaborative uh, and commits to building a new era of sustainability, an era where environmental, social and governance, and they're calling it ESG as one, environmental, social governance. Issues are deeply integrated into business based on both material and ethical rationales. At the summit, leaders will collectively uh, tackle priority areas that are central to corporate leadership today and essential for the transformation to sustainable markets and the achievement of societal goals. That also means depopulations. I hope you understand that. And that means you too, folks. With over 1,000 global leaders in attendance, this triennial summit will be the most important UN business event ever held. Then he goes into all the rest of it, part one, two, and three, and all the rest of it. And then into their very socialistic newspeak, which is awfully boring stuff. But you have to understand, everything was planned a long time ago, and all the organizations, including your governments, uh, were told a long time ago to be on board with this agenda as they bring this uh, socialized, interdependent world into being with the redistribution of your wealth. Yep, you thought it was all the rich folk, all you folk at the bottom. No, it was your money they meant, and your tax money will be used to go off and fill the pockets of corporations and other parts of the planet. And you're going to get poorer and poorer and poorer. And uh, it's interesting. I remember, I think it was at one of the, the World Bank meetings, and Maurice Strong was in attendance. And a man tape-recorded the conversations there and played it on the air in some of the Patriot stations. And he talked to Maurice Strong, and he says, well, you, you've given all these rights to animals and everything. It may have been there, some it. But he says, yeah, and trees and so on. And Strong looked at him and he says, you Americans, he says, you wish you had the rights of a tree when we're finished. No kidding. These are the real psychopaths that uh, are running these shows, you see. They hate Americans. And, And they hate ordinary people. They hate them with a vengeance. They're elitists, and they believe that they should eradicate all the inferior types. It's always been on their books for over a 100 years. They've given lists of them that would have to perish so that they would be saved at the top. That's a, that's a, a basic belief, a tenet of Darwinism. So you understand that uh, you're simply on a road preordained a long time ago using mass psychology, very good sciences, and educational training and indoctrinations, and media reinforcements and fictional reinforcements through movies and so on, that you're on this path. Last night I mentioned all these disaster movies that are meant to augment all that, and so that you'll go along with saying, oh gee whiz, I don't want to go down into a world where we're all eating each other and there's never any sunlight coming through, we're dressed in rags. Oh, save us, save us. 
And that's unfortunate, but most of the people will, will demand at the end. That's just the way it goes. Now, I've mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations many, many times. And it has uh, its big bottom branches. It's also it's got its top branches as well. There's always an inner party and an outer party. And just like Freemasonry, they use a lot of the outer party for to be little actors and PR spokesmen. And this article came out of uh, Foreign Relations. And it says, this Justin, George Clooney joins Council on Foreign Relations. They take actors in too, you see. And newscasters, and most of them actually are newscasters, they're all members. Meet the newest member of the Council on Foreign Relations, George Clooney. The Oscar winner has been granted life membership in the prestigious think tank. Uh, Charlie Rose in the New York term, Times columnist Nick Christoph nominated him. CFR's Vice President Lisa Shields cited the actor's advocacy on the Darfur crisis and the importance of non-traditional voices in foreign policy. Well, that's also what the UN says in their websites, that they use uh, anybody who comes in and, and starts pushing the political agenda on their behalf. It's actually called an actor. Even the NGOs are called uh, soft actors or soft um, force. It says Michael Douglas and Warren Beatty are also life members. Angelina Jolie scored a term membership set aside for junior wonks in 2007. In a statement via CFR, Clooney said, I'm honoured to have been nominated, and I hear the initiation ritual as well. That's his wee joke, you see. But, uh, you see, everything is, is political, and you forget that. Everything has a political purpose. And if they can put an idol up there, because we, be, we worship celebrities, that's how stupid folk are. And I talked about that great uh, documentary, Star Suckers, and people worshipping, worshipping celebrities, they use these characters to influence those that can't think for themselves. And it's a sad state of affairs that people will follow um, actors, actors for goodness sake, people who, who never know who they really are themselves. They just act. And by God, if they degraded society, and you all emulate it too because... As I said, in ancient times, you follow the stars. Those that can't think follow the stars, and they provide them for you. But the CFR uh, has uh, all the media moguls as members. They have all your top journalists as members. I remember one of the top scriptwriters for George Bush was uh, David Frum, and he was the Canadian son of the Canadian Barbara Frum, who'd helped to brainwash Canadians with their main news for about 40 years. And it was so interesting, too, um, when he was helping him. Uh, one, I think it was Kerry had a, a Canadian, a top writer as well, doing all his scripts from him, a guy from British Columbia that was well sought after. You have no idea how important these well-trained script writers are in psycholinguistics, neurolinguistics, psychology, the masses, and so on. You have no idea how important good ones are. And Sarkozy's one, I think, is from Spain or somewhere. He brought her over because she's so good at what she does. They pay millions of dollars for them. And in between working for the politicians, they're working for the military, for their propaganda and psychological warfare. So they're not doing it on other countries, they're doing it on you. And we're all oblivious. Most folk are oblivious of all of this stuff going on. There was a scriptwriter for Bob Ray. It was mentioned by the Toronto Sun when he was in. 
another guy that had a sort of quick religious conversion that when I, he's astonished to find out who he really was once he was in. But anyway, um, Bob Ray, uh, who was a bit further left than Marx, and whose brother had helped up draft up the communist uh, manifesto of the Charter of Rights at the United Nations, along with Alger Hiss, uh, Bob Ray, um, his, his particular one was a guy, Gold something, Gold, Bloomberg, whatever, and uh, said this guy had been there for three different premiers of Ontario. And the, the media said the reason they never talked about him was because they were all terrified to say anything about him in the media. That's how much power he wielded. He wielded more power, the script writer and advisor, more power than the front men, premiers and politicians. That's how powerful they are. Amazing, eh? Isn't it amazing? Or is it really? I wonder. And you know, too, as I've said years ago, the internet will be given for a phase, for a time. The folk will become hooked on it or go mainstream. And because they're hooked on it, they'll stay hooked on it. That's the simple agenda for it. And uh, everybody knows, I'm sure by now, about the internet kill switch proposed for the U.S. Uh, and this is in uh, a news article that came out, ZDNet. Internet kill switch proposed for U.S. 15th of June, a new U.S. Senate bill would grant the present far-reaching emergency powers to seize control of or even shut down portions of the Internet. The legislation says that companies such as broadband providers, search engines, or software firms that the U.S. government selects shall immediately comply with any emergency measure or action developed by the Department of Homeland Security. So there you go, Homeland Security. Anyone failing to comply would be fined. That emergency authority would allow the federal government to preserve those networks and assets and our country and protect our people. Joe Lieberman, the primary sponsor of the measure and the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, told reporters on Thursday. Lieberman is also an independent senator from Connecticut who meets with the Democrats. Due to there being few limits on the U.S. president's emergency power, which can be renewed indefinitely, the densely worded 197-page bill, 197 pages, and the link is on this article here too, for you can download it, is likely to encounter stiff opposition. I don't think so. Uh, Tech America, probably the largest U.S. technology lobby group, said it was concerned about unintended consequences that would result from the legislation's regulatory approach and the potential for absolute power. And the Center for Democracy and Technology publicly worried that the Lieberman Bill's emergency powers include authority to shut down or limit Internet traffic on private systems. Of course they do, that's the whole intention. The idea of an Internet kill switch that the President could flip is not new. A draft Senate proposed a proposal that ZDNet, Australia's sister site CNET, obtained in August, allowed the White House to declare a cybersecurity emergency and another from Senators J. Rockefeller and Olympia Snow would have explicitly given the government the power to order the disconnection of certain networks or websites. Well, that's the real intention of it. So one day you wake up and I won't be here along with maybe some others. On Thursday, both senators lauded Lieberman's bill, uh, which is formally titled Protecting Cyberspace as a National Asset Act, or PCNAA. Rockefeller said, I commend the drafters of the PCNAA. Collins went further, signing up at a co-sponsor and saying at a press conference that we cannot afford to wait for a cyber 9-11 before our government realizes the importance of protecting our cyber resources. That's nonsense because the military's got all that sewn up. I've got all their articles here over the years. 
It's to go for individual people, folks, and organizations. So under PCNNA, uh, the federal government's power to force private companies to comply with emergency decrees would become unusually broad. Any company on a list created by Homeland Security that also relies on the Internet, the telephone system, or any other component of the U.S. information infrastructure would be subject to command by a new National Center for Cybersecurity and Communications that would be created inside Homeland Security. So they can also cut your phone off. The only obvious limitation to the NCCC's emergency power is one paragraph in the Lieberman Bill that appears to have grown out of the Bush-era flap over wiretapping without a warrant. That limitation says that the NCCC cannot order broadband providers or other companies to conduct surveillance of America of Americans unless it's otherwise legally authorized, which already is. So this is another part of Big Brother going in. Uh, not unexpected, of course. They will have their way uh, step by little step by little step until you'll get just the mainstream on it. Uh, with the mainstream newspapers, as they always have done, to give you, you know, the, the right kind of points of view and how you should be thinking and seeing things and how you should be seeing and viewing the world the proper way, the authorized way. Then there's Asia-Pacific. Interesting, uh, New York Times it says here on June the 13th, uh, 13th, U.S. identifies vast riches of minerals in Afghanistan. Well, like they just found this out, right? Oh, come on. The United States has discovered nearly $1 trillion worth in untapped mineral deposits in Afghanistan. I guess that's what they're really using all those drones to blow up the places up for it. They're really mining. Far beyond any previously known reserves and enough to fundamentally alter the Afghan economy and perhaps the Afghan war itself, according to senior American government officials. Well, I guarantee there'll be American companies already uh, got first dibs. They'll be signed and sealed. And they'll be ready to move in once the military take these parts over, just as like it did in Iraq. The previously unknown deposits, which is rubbish. That you know, Britain was in there in the 1800s, tapping all over the place. They know where everything is, including huge veins of iron, copper, cobalt, gold, lots of gold there, by the way, and critical industrial metals like lithium are so big and include so many minerals that are essential to modern industry that Afghanistan could eventually be transformed into one of the most important mining centers in the world, the United States officials believe, after we've killed off all the Afghanis. I added that last part. <laughs> because, after all, they don't want trouble and they want to take it over. You kill off the young, you see. They don't grow up to be fighters. That's what uh, they do in other countries, too. Back with more after these messages. Cutting through the matrix, you know, years ago I travelled all through Europe watching the same cons being pulled in, the same, in a bunch of countries. And what you'll find is that the taxpayers and the citizenry always paid for what they needed for the, for the local systems they lived in. The, the sewer system, the water system, uh, they had gas systems uh, and different systems. They paid for it. It was, it was either localised or nationalised, but the taxpayers funded it completely and paid for its upkeep and employees and so on. And it worked very, very well. And I remember Britain, what they used to do too, I should say too, is then they'd bring in the conservatives 
and the conservatives would say, oh, look at the mess of this, this is not, it's not functioning, and they would privatize it uh, for a while. Uh, they made sure, mind you, the, the other party would make sure that everything was up and running really well, well-maintained before uh, the next bunch came in, and the right wing would then pr- privatize it to their buddies for peanuts, who would run it into the, the ground for profits and, and jack everything up. And then when it was time, when everything was run ragged, they never maintained anything. You see, put money in, it was all for profit. Then the left wing would come back in again and nationalize it again. This went back on and on, on and off all for years until eventually they came in totally and, and, and privatized it all. But it's a strange new privatization. It's called public-private partnerships where the private company takes all the profits and the public pay for the upkeep of it, you see, and you rent the use of it. So it's a great con, and all countries do this, you see. And I got a letter here from someone in Idaho. I know him very well, and he works for the for the government there, the state government. And he's, he says here, uh, the city is talking about privatizing the sewer and the water. Of course, they will be able to run it more efficiently, they say, blah, blah, blah. That's his, his words. Here's what I found out. The sewer and water is pretty much uh, paid for and in the black according to state laws. In other words, it's, making, it's, it's not broke. It's not in, it's in the red. It's in the black. Uh, the money they bring in has to, has to go to the upkeep of the system. So you have a system that is bought and paid for with little or no real debt to it. If they sell it, the company that buys it will have to obtain loans to buy it. For them to buy it and to sell water to you and sewer services, the cost of running it will involve servicing a new debt. There's a profit motive to go with it. In essence, we have a water service that is bought and paid for. If it is sold, we have to pay for a system that is now already paid for. While the city and county will recoup the money from a sale, it means the people using the water will have to pay for the system all over again. You get the added bonus that could be a European company that buys it. So you have any problems, you can't complain to your elected leaders. And they love that. So that's true. You know, you, well, we can't help you, you know. It's, uh, it's owned by those guys in Japan or wherever. It says it's a, remorg- a remortgaging of the water service for a multinational corporation. How does it get any better than that? So now I remember, too, in Britain they did it and they're pushing the bills through to nationalize the water system that all belong to the peoples, supposedly. And uh, a few MPs put it through. They all became sirs and lords. And they left immediately after the bill was passed, and they just happened to have a company started who ended up getting uh, the rights to pretty well the whole water supply of Britain. And then they went into the gas industry, and now they're going across the world grabbing everybody's water and gas well backed by the city, you know, the city of London, you know. Of course, that's what they get away with in big places. For the little people at the bottom, you just pay and pay and pay, and then you play as well, and you listen to your comedies and have fun. And if you want to change it, you better start thinking and speaking out very fast and doing some heavy protesting. From Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.